Hello, folks. Welcome to the June 2022 edition of First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. Uh, I'm Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. Now, I know I've been a little bit shy in recent months talking about cases because we've had such big events happening as uh, the court's response to the pandemic and vaccine requirements and and various other significant events. Uh, this time, uh, I got a lot of cases to talk about. I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on any of them, um, but it's an interesting and important group of cases. And I can think of nothing more interesting or important than porta-potties. No, actually, I want to start this off a little bit light. And believe it or not, there is a case about porta potty retaliation. This involves the Shelton Police Union in Shelton, Connecticut. So back in March of 2020, uh, the governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, proclaims a COVID-19 state of emergency. And very quickly, six days later, issues an executive order that shuts down all indoor gyms, fitness centers, or similar facilities. So in the Shelton Police Department, uh, a month after the executive order, uh, the department decides it's time to close down the department's gym. So Lieutenant Brian Yurzak puts signs on the doors of the gym facility and the male and female locker rooms stating that they were closed until further notice and that entry may result in disciplinary action. Let's pause there for a moment. Think about where you are with your employers. Are your employers going to post something that says you can't use the gym and then follow it up with or you'll be subject to disciplinary action? The moment I read that, I thought, uh, something's not so good in the state of Shelton, Connecticut. Anyway, so Lieutenant Yerzak posts those signs on the door and then issues a memorandum that states the workout rooms and locker rooms are closed until further notice. Any patrol officer who needs to enter the building needs to radio or call the on-duty supervisor for permission. So what does the union do? Again, this is the Shelton Police Union. Well, it does what a union has the right to do under these sorts of circumstances. It demands to bargain, right? The employer has to bargain over wages, hours, and working conditions. And whether or not you can use a gym or anything in the main police department uh, facilities, uh, that would seem to be a negotiable working condition. So the, uh, the men's locker room, to give you a little bit more background here, uh, has an attached restroom with multiple stalls. I love the way these labor boards uh, describe these things with such familiarity. They, they, you can tell they have fun with these sorts of cases. Uh, so uh, a little bit after uh, Lieutenant Yerzak posts his notice and sends his memo, he puts an additional sign on the men's locker room door stating that individuals could use the restroom, but only one at a time. Now, the woman's locker room 
only has one stall, so yours act doesn't place a similar sign on that door. Uh, and he didn't remove the sign barring entry to the locker room like he did for the men, or at least one man at a time could go into the locker room for the sole purpose of using one stall in the restroom. The union, of course, quickly responds that, uh, quote, female officers are not entitled to the same options and privileges as men, uh, male officers. Days later, the department says, okay, a pox on all of you, and closes all the restrooms, closes, closes the men's locker room again and the restroom, and instead installs two porta potties. You knew we were going to get there, equipped with lighting and hand sanitizers in the rear parking lot of the police headquarters. Again, the union demands to bargain and uh, believes that what is going on is that by putting the porta potties in the parking lot, that really what you've got now is a safety problem. So the union. A couple days later, all this happens in about 10 days or so, the union's business agent comes to the station to inspect the porta-potties uh, for the safety issues. Uh, when the city learns of that, it immediately begins an investigation into the business agent's visit, including reviewing, quote, I'm quoting from the Labor Board's opinion, surveillance video footage showing an individual dressed in a t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops exit an idling vehicle and examine the porta-potties. Lieutenant Yerzak, ever on the ball here, issues the business agent a criminal infraction notice for simple trespass. Really? I'm not making any of this up. We'll post this opinion for you with the show notes so that you can see it. Uh, at this point, the union has just simply had enough, uh, and it files an unfair labor practice complaint, the equivalent of them. They're called something else in Connecticut, uh, but files an unfair labor practice complaint alleging both bad faith bargaining, you didn't negotiate with us over, you know, the find the ball thing with uh, where we're going to have restrooms and the like, and also retaliation. And I, I do think uh, that the retaliation piece here is much more important than the demand to bargain. Uh, I mean, the way the court or the labor board analyzes the demand to bargain is pretty familiar now. It says, yeah, this is a negotiable working condition. When and how you can use a restroom is clearly negotiable. Um, but that in an emergency, the employer can unilaterally act so long as it fails, or so long as it bargains with the union in a reasonable time period uh, after it implements its decision. And the board says, COVID-19, this is an emergency. Employer could act, could close the, uh, the male and female locker rooms, but had to sit down and bargain right away. It didn't, therefore, unfair labor practice. Now, the more interesting case is one of retaliation. 
because this is where the labor board gets into a pretty familiar test for how you know whether or not you've got anti-union retaliation. And uh, the board says, it's actually called the Connecticut uh, Labor Department, um, uh, so I'll call it either board or department. The department says to establish a prima facie case of retaliation, the union has to show three things. It has to show that the union engaged in concerted activities, that the employer knew of them, and third, uh, that the employer, in taking whatever action that it did, harbored anti-union atomists. So the department looking at this case says, well, as to the first test, we don't have any problem finding that uh, that what the business agent did coming out to examine the porta potties, we have no difficulty finding that that is concerted activity. He was investigating a potential unfair labor practice, albeit in shorts and flip flops, but he he was examining a potential unfair labor practice. Um, second. Um, we know from the testimony of Lieutenant Yerzak that during the course of his criminal investigation into the trespass charge, that he made a point of reviewing the contract. So that means, perforce, that automatically he knows that the business agent is engaged in protected activity. Uh, and third, the department says, uh, easy call, quote, we find that the city's actions towards the business agent were inherently retaliatory and intended to punish the union for continuing to challenge the department's determination that porta potties were alternative restroom facilities for patrol officers. Uh, so, bottom line conclusion illegal retaliation. Now, the city makes an interesting argument. Uh, the city makes the argument that, yeah, you know, we did respond to the business agents showing up on our property uh, to look at the porta potties, but we only did because he was trespassing, and we would have issued a trespass to a citation to anybody who came into our parking lot. Uh, and the labor board says, oh, you got a whole lot of facts standing in your way. Uh, before you can convince us of that, because, quote, civilians have historically trespassed in the rear parking lot of the Shelton Police Department headquarters without being charged, and the record is devoid of evidence to justify treating the business agent more severely. So uh, it, it's an interesting case, not just because the facts are so quirky, but also because it gets us right into this a burden of proof that unions have in anti-union retaliation cases. And the Labor Department here really does a good job of laying out the three-part burden of proof. You have to show concerted activities, you have to show that the employer knew about it, and you have to show, usually through uh, implication, you're not going to find direct evidence, but you have to show that the employer took adverse action because it was motivated by anti-union animus. You have to show that it was acting in a discriminatory fashion.
Next up, we've got a Florida case. This is from Florida's Public Employment Relations Commission, the General Counsel. There's kind of an unusual step for filing unfair labor practice complaints in Florida. Uh, instead of the unfair labor practice complaint going to a hearing officer, instead there is a General Counsel for Florida's PERC, the Public Employment Relations Commission, and the General Counsel reviews all complaints for legal sufficiency. And for whatever reason, uh, the general counsel in Florida, historically, no matter who it has been, uh, has taken a very serious role on in evaluating the legal sufficiency of complaints. Many uh, unfair labor practice complaints are simply kicked out by the general counsel and never get to hearing. I would venture a guess, but I'll bet I'm right, that the general counsel in Florida uh, dismisses more unfair labor practice complaints than all of the general counsels for all of the other labor boards in the country combined. Uh, I mean, it's just a frequent result in Florida. It's, it's really kind of fascinating. Uh, and usually the general counsel in Florida, when they're kicking things out, uh, it'll be on the strangest of technicalities. And I, th I think that the case I'm about to describe uh, is in that category, although it stands for much more. It's more important than what the General Counsel of Florida does uh, because it instead deals with an important issue about a grievance procedure and what happens when an employer fails to respond in a timely fashion to a grievance. So this is a case involving the city of St. Petersburg in Florida. It's a police case involving the Police Benevolent Association. Uh, and the association files an unfair labor practice complaint alleging that the city had violated its bargaining obligation and the way the city had handled uh, a termination grievance. Uh, what did the PBA think that the city did wrong? Well, when the grievance was filed, it's step one of the grievance procedure, the city just simply uh, ignored it. Uh, it didn't issue a response. It instead uh, notified the PBA that it was advancing the grievance to step two on the same day the grievance was filed. No, the contract says something about this. The contract requires that the chief, quote, shall issue a written response that includes an affirmation or denial of the facts upon which the grievance is based, end quote. But the city just simply blew right back by that and moved the grievance from step one to step two. The PBA answers right away. It objects to what the city has done uh, and says you don't have any right to ignore step one of the grievance procedure. Uh, but in an abundance of caution, the PBA advances the grievance to step two. Now, step two of this grievance procedure requires a meeting between the city's labor relations manager and whoever the grievant is. And despite that, uh, the city simply sent a letter to the PBA saying someone will be in touch. No one was ever in touch. And so the PBA files an unfair labor practice saying, basically, you're repudiating the requirements of the grievance procedure. Um, and the PBA's argument is that because the city 
fail to participate in a meaningful way, in a required way. In step one, steps one and two of the grievance procedure, the city had effectively granted the grievance. And uh, the PBA was asking PERC to issue an order reinstating uh, the officer and basically granting the grievance. All right, so this goes to the general counsel. What does he do? First of all, he says, I'm going to dismiss this. Uh, the charge is factually uh, deficient. Here comes the technicality. Uh, under a Florida statute and PERC's rules, when you file an unfair labor practice charge, the charge has to be accompanied by a copy of the collective bargaining agreement under which it was filed. The PBA didn't attach a copy of the collective bargaining agreement. It did attach a copy of the grievance procedure, but the general counsel says, that's not enough. You have to put the full contract in. Oh my goodness, really. Um, it kind of reminds me, I think this is a quote from Voltaire. I could have this wrong. No, it's not. It's from uh, Anatole Prince, I think it is, that the law in its majesty forbids both the rich and poor from sleeping under bridges. Now, this is the law in its majesty, right? You didn't attach the whole contract. All you did was to attach the grievance procedure. But the general counsel goes on. And uh, what the general counsel has to say when he goes on is the reason that I wanted to talk about this case. Uh, the general counsel said, look, even if the PBA had included the whole contract, I still would have dismissed this case. Uh, why? Because Perk has explained that, and I'm quoting, an employer's technical noncompliance with a grievance procedure is, or a failure to respond to a grievance at a pre-arbitral step, is unlawful only if the employer's conduct prohibits the grievant from advancing the grievance to arbitration. And that's not the case here. The city was always willing to go to arbitration. It simply was not complying with the steps of the grievance procedure that preceded arbitration. Back to the general counsel, quote, thus the city is not prohibiting the PBA from advancing the grievance to arbitration. To the contrary, the city is actively attempting to resolve the grievance. Therefore, the unfair labor practice charge is insufficient. Uh, and actually, I think that uh, is a completely correct ruling, uh, that there's no uh, repudiation charge here, so long as the employer is willing to uh, process the grievance to the ultimate step, in this case, final and binding arbitration. Now, the employer's non-compliance with the early steps of the grievance procedure could in and of itself be a basis for filing a grievance. Hard to say what the remedy would be other than an arbitrator saying, uh, don't do it again. But the real solution here for the union is to try to negotiate a change in the grievance procedure, right? In your grievance procedure, you can say what happens if either the union or the employer fails to advance a grievance in a timely fashion. Many grievance procedures say that if a union 
blows the time limits on the grievance procedure, the grievance is considered withdrawn. Not as many, but some a collective bargaining agreements say that if the employer fails to respond in a timely fashion, the grievance is granted. You can negotiate those sorts of clauses in your grievance procedure and not leave it up to whatever your equivalent of the general counsel for the Florida PERC is going to say about what the remedy should be for a breach of the requirements of the grievance procedure. So the solution is not to file an unfair labor practice complaint here. The solution is try to bargain from the standpoint of the union better language for the grievance procedure. Next up, I've got not one, but two Weingarten cases. And the first one uh, will stay in Florida with Florida's perk. Only this time it's the full perk, not the general counsel. Just as a reminder to everybody under the Weingarten rule, this is from a Supreme Court case called uh, National Labor Relations Board versus Weingarten. Uh, an employee has the right to representation by a union if the employee is facing questioning about which the employee could reasonably believe discipline could result. So that's the background. And, and even the Weingarten itself as a, a case interpreting the National Labor Relations Board isn't applicable to employees of cities, counties, and states because the NLRA, National Labor Relations Act, doesn't apply to cities, counties, and states. State labor boards across the country have routinely uh, held that Weingarten rights exist uh, either under uh, the their own state's analogies to um, Weingarten or under some different statutory scheme, but the right to representation exists. If you've got labor rights in your state, some sort of right to representation that looks like Weingarten rights will exist. So that is background. What's going on in this case? It involves a fairly contentious police station specialist who's by the name of Jacqueline Canovas, who is working for the Miami-Dade County Police Department in Florida. Uh, she's in the Training Bureau, and she's a member of a labor organization known as the Professional Law Enforcement Association. I'll call it PLEA here. Uh, Canovas's direct supervisor is a sergeant by the name of Audino, and Audino in turn reports to Lieutenant Artemis. Uh, and whenever Audino is out of the office, uh, Canovas reports directly to Lieutenant Artemis. So uh, Canovas's job is that of completing traces, uh, which are, they, they basically involve document review and making sure the documents are accurate and complete. Uh, traces have to be submitted to whatever department is involved in the use of the document on a very clear timetable. Uh, and uh, Canovas apparently is fairly routinely late with some of her traces. So all of this starts on October 12th of 2020 uh, when Canovas is assigned a large trace that is related to payroll. So payroll documents to see whether or not they're complete and correct and all that. Uh, the deadline is October 26th, so she has two weeks to complete this trace. Uh, it's later extended to October 30th. On October 23rd, so 
Three days before the original deadline, Artemay, the lieutenant, sends Canovas a test saying, text saying, how's the trace going? And Canovas responds, we just got an extension till October 30. Uh, someone must have realized we would need more time, but it's going good. October 26, so the original deadline, Sergeant Audino returns to the office. Now, she is unaware that the deadline of the payroll trace has been extended from the 26th to the 30th. Uh, the following day, on October 27th, still unaware of the extension, uh, Sergeant Audino comes to Canovas's cubicle and says, what's up? What's going on on the status of this trace? Canovas responds that Sergeant Audino is picking on her and says, now this is personal. This is going to go well, isn't it? Can't you just tell? Canovas said, I'm not going to speak with you, Sergeant. I will only speak with Lieutenant Artemé. Continuing to go well, right? Sergeant Audino told Canovas that she'd let Lieutenant Artemé know and left the cubicle. At no time in that exchange did Canovas ask for legal representation. But Canovas very quickly uh, gets in touch with the vice president of plea uh, and asks the vice president uh, to come to my office right away. They are harassing me, and I won't meet with them unless you're here. So later on, Lieutenant Artemé approaches, approaches Canovas's cubicle and says, look, it's, it's my understanding that you want to see me, so let's meet. Canova said, I'm not going to meet with you without my union representative present. Artemé says to Canovas, you don't need a union rep. The purpose of the meeting is to discuss the trace uh, and what's needed to meet the new deadline. This is just a workplace conversation we're trying to have. Lieutenant Artemé also says to Canovas on multiple occasions that the meeting was not disciplinary in nature. And each time that Lieutenant Artemé tries to get information about the trace, Canovas interrupts her. Um, and finally, Artemé concludes that the meeting is not going well, adjourns the meeting, uh, and the department subsequently gives Canovas a written reprimand for her conduct. A written reprimand? I know departments where you'd be on the beach for a while for engaging in this activity. Um, but uh, at any rate, she just gets an, a, a written reprimand. Plea, her union, decides that this is an unfair labor practice and files one with Florida's PERC alleging that the denial of Canovas' request for representation constituted a violation of the Weingarten rule. And PERC dismisses the complaint. Why? Uh, PERC says, look, uh, you only get the right to representation when you reasonably believe that discipline could result from the conversation. Here, the employer, through Lieutenant Artemé, said a couple of things many times. One was, this was not about discipline. You can't be disciplined for this conversation. And secondly, Lieutenant Artemé said, 
All we want to know is about this work-related issue and whether or not you're going to be able to meet the deadline. There's no way, says Perk, that Canova's could reasonably believe that discipline could result once she had been repeatedly assured that discipline would not result. Now, Perk doesn't go on to say the second half of the sentence, which I think it probably would, uh, or probably should have. Uh, And the second half of the sentence is, if the employer promises that it won't discipline you, then it can't discipline you. But I think that's implied in Perk's decision. Uh, And Canova says, uh, her response to all this is, well, I know that's what they said, but I still believed that they were going to discipline me. And given our history, I think that belief was reasonable. And Perk's answer of that is simply to wash its hands of the whole thing and say, you know, you had a hearing on this case before a hearing officer. We're just, you know, considering the appeal of the hearing officer's decision. We don't make credibility determinations. That's up to hearing officers who can see witnesses testify and and can judge credibility on a firsthand basis. And this hearing officer explicitly found that Canovas was not a credible witness. We're not going to second guess that. That's not simply our job. Uh, And the the way that uh, Perk puts this is it's the hearing officer's function to consider all evidence presented resolve conflicts, and judge credibility of witnesses. Uh, Therefore, unfair labor practice complaint uh, dismissed. Pretty standard ruling there where the employer uh, assures the employee that discipline cannot result. Now, what if, let's, uh, let's play what if for just a moment. What if Lieutenant Artemay did not leave that cubicle persisted in questioning uh, Canovas as to what had happened, started raising her voice, started acting in a way that made it seem like discipline was in the offing. Would the result be the same? Maybe not. Uh, There are some decisions of labor boards saying that even when the employer starts off assuring an employee that no discipline can result from a conversation, If the employer acts inconsistently with that assurance in the way that it conducts the interview or the questioning, then there may be Weingarten rights that exist. But we never get there here because when Canova says, I'm not going to talk to you without my union representative present, uh, Lieutenant Artemay just simply walks away. Our second Weingarten case comes from the state of New Jersey, uh, and it continues somewhat of the theme that we seem to have for this month's podcast, and that is bad employer uh, labor organization relations and how sometimes those bad relations are, uh, you know, they just simply get in the way of getting things done. Uh, I'm I'm reminded uh, sometimes of... Uh, something that a management side labor lawyer, she was a assistant municipal attorney up in Anchorage, and she was somebody who actually just got thrown into the job of doing labor relations. I think she was a, a zoning lawyer or something like that. And when they needed a new labor relations lawyer, uh, she must have been off sick that day because they picked her. 
uh, and she had no background in labor relations. And uh, a few years later, she left. She went back east to, uh, to go work for the federal government. And she said something, something to me when she left uh, that really has stuck with me. Uh, she said she was asked to describe by her friends what being a labor relations lawyer is all about. Uh, and she said the best analogy she could come up with was that it's like being a divorce lawyer only where your clients can never actually get divorced. Um, and when I read this case coming out of New Jersey, I was actually reminded of that. And that led to being reminded as well that, you know, after years of representing labor unions and collective bargaining and all sorts of different phases of their existence, I am so completely convinced that the most important thing in labor relations is the relationship. You have to care for it. You have to treat it with dignity and respect and honesty at all times because the relationship will exist after you aren't there anymore and after the person on the other side that you may be momentarily mad at is not there anymore. Well, at any rate, uh, it seems like the parties in this New Jersey case don't have quite that philosophical approach to labor relations. Okay, enough background. Let's get into the case. Uh, this involves the Policemen's Benevolent Association, the PBA in New Jersey, that represents corrections officers working for the New Jersey Department of Corrections. And there are four people who are involved in this. Uh, two of them are corrections officers Jared Smith and Ivan Rivera. They are ordered to meet with Major Scott Abbott. So Smith and Rivera, corrections officers, ordered to meet with Major Abbott. The fourth person uh, who is involved is someone named Stuart Alterman. Actually, there's five now that I think about it. It's Stuart Alter Alterman, who's the PBA's counsel. He learns of the meeting before it occurs. Uh, Smith and Rivera don't actually request representation. Told you this was a Weingarten, right? Uh, Weingarten case, right? And Weingarten rights only exist if the employee requests representation, and they don't here. But the PBA's counsel, Alterman, finds out about the meeting, and he writes uh, a Department of Corrections major, this is our fifth guy, Major LeBon, and says, look, I understand you've ordered both officers in for an interview. Quote, in order to do so, you must go through me as counsel. Perhaps you were unaware, and thus this email. Kindly contact me in the morning to discuss this matter. I'm very curious to learn what a confidential interview is and how it applies in the scheme of things, end quote. You can tell this is not going to go well, right? Okay, Major LeBon responds, uh, Quote, you have been provided with incorrect information because Officer Smith and Rivera were not ordered in to be interviewed. They're being ordered to the major's office for a confidential matter. When they arrive this morning, they'll be met by myself or my partner, Major Abbott, 
and will then be provided with direction accordingly. Because they're not being interviewed, they are not entitled to legal or union representation, end quote. So Major Laban uh, takes the tone of Attorney Alterman's email and ups the level of intensity by at least a factor of one, right? And what should be going through uh, the minds of attorney Alterman, Smith, and Rivera at this point? Something like, well, why are they being ordered in to discuss a confidential matter, but there will be no questioning? Were this me? I think I'd be telling the two of them you need to be seeing a criminal defense lawyer. Um, But that's not the way this one uh, uh, plays out. So Alterman then responds to Laban, uh, Laban, Major Laban, and says, and I've got to read this quote. It's a little bit long, but it's really good. Uh, Quote, your actions are illegal and violate these officers' rights and are otherwise discourteous. Ignorance of these facts are no excuse, and you need to seek counsel yourself. Please be advised, official complaint action will be taken against you, a tort claims notice will be filed against you, a lawsuit will then be filed. End quote. Hmm, this is not going well at all. Smith and Rivera then do show up to meet with Major Abbott. What happens? They're immediately arrested. No questioning. The PBA then files an unfair labor practice charge alleging that the interview violated the Weingarten rights of Smith and Rivera. And the unfair labor practice director, kind of the equivalent of the general counsel in Florida, uh, has very much the same function in New Jersey of doing a preliminary review of unfair labor practice charges. So the unfair labor practice director uh, dismisses the charge. And uh, the, the ULP director says, I'm going to dismiss this for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the easy piece, there was no questioning here. So there's no Weingarten rights. The employer said there's going to be no questioning. It didn't conduct any questioning. So therefore, there is no Weingarten violation. Second, and this is where I think the case gets a little bit uh, interesting, is, is there a right to a Weingarten representative when the employer is going to arrest whoever the employees are. And the ULP director says, no, there is not such a right. Uh, Quote, the PBA does not dispute that the meeting was to effectuate an arrest, not an interview. And it does not allege that Smith and Rivera could have reasonably believed that their arrest was investigative or akin to an interview. The elements of a Weingarten claim aren't here. So uh, actually, this is the first case I've ever seen where this theory has been raised that uh, there is the Weingarten right to representation when employees are being arrested by the employer. Thankfully, it doesn't happen that often that employees are being arrested by the employer. And I think the ULP director got it right here. 
uh, uh, because there is no questioning. And the whole idea behind the Weingarten rule, if you go back and, and read Justice Thurgood Marshall's opinion in the Weingarten case, um, the whole idea is that the union representative can function to assist the employee during an interview, uh, can take the employee out into the hall and have conversations with the employee, um, and even, as uh, Justice Marshall put it, to assist the employer by getting to the bottom of the incident that occasions the interview. So the function of a Weingarten uh, representative is entirely interview-based. No interview, no Weingarten right to representation. I want to wind up this month with a constitutional law case, and it involves what you could think of as very broadly uh, nepotism rules. Now, a few things about uh, nepotism rules. Uh, first of all, if you're uh, and, and by nepotism rules, I probably should define it. And these are rules that prohibit relationships between employees. So it, they could be rules that prohibit dating relationships between a supervisor and subordinate. They could be rules that prohibit uh, people who are husbands and wives from either working together or working for the same employer. Uh, sometimes they extend to uh, other than simply dating relationships and husbands and wives, and they could refer to other familial relationships like brother-sister and the like. So these are rules that prohibit certain types of relationships or require that certain job actions be taken if such a relationship exists, like you can't work on the same shift together or can't be supervised by uh, somebody you're in a relationship with. So uh, I want to say these things just broadly about nepotism rules. Uh, first of all, in states with collective bargaining for public safety employees, nepotism rules are thought to be a working condition that is subject to negotiations. So the employer could not unilaterally adopt or change nepotism rules without first bargaining with the labor organization. And in states where the bargaining process ends with binding arbitration, it would mean an arbitrator would end up deciding the confines of the nepotism rule. So that's the first principle, is that nepotism rules, if you're in a bargaining world, are very likely to be negotiable. Second principle uh, is that uh, if an employee is disciplined for violating a nepotism rule in a union environment, it's likely going to be an arbitrator who ends up hearing the appeal of the discipline. It could be, depending upon your state, like if you're in Illinois, it could be like a police and fire uh, board of commissioners that would end up deciding it, but typically it's going to be a labor arbitrator. And the third thing is that we are seeing around the country ever so slightly, this isn't a big trend, ever so slightly, employers easing nepotism rules for law enforcement agencies. Why? We just simply can't hire enough police officers, deputy sheriffs, troopers, and corrections officers. Uh, and so what might have been considered someone who would be off limits for hiring because they were in a relationship with someone else, uh, maybe not so much anymore. 
So those three observations I wanted to give you. But what if you're in a state where there is no collective bargaining and they have nepotism rules uh, or a city in a state without a, in, a, in a state that does not have mandatory collective bargaining, but where there is no collective bargaining in the city. And that's what we have on our hands with Sergeant Jeffrey Wolf. Um, and uh, Jeffrey Wolf was a sergeant for the Town and Country Police Department in Missouri. He'd worked there for a long time, for 26 years. And in 2016 and in 2017, one of the patrol officers that he supervised was Lauren Becker, who later became his wife. Uh, and once the city realizes the two are in a relationship, they demote Wolf from sergeant to corporal after a determination by uh, what the department calls its personnel committee that the demotion was in the best interests of the department, quote, so as not to impair the efficiency of the department considering the ramifications of Wolf's admission of a sexual relationship involving a former direct subordinate officer, end quote. So the demotion happens after the two, Wolf and uh, Becker, uh, after the two were in a direct supervisor-subordinate relationship. Now, the department has no rule prohibiting dating among officers, but does have a general conduct unbecoming rule. When he's demoted, Wolf sues, and because he's not in a collective bargaining state, all he has to fall back on is the Constitution. What part of the Constitution? Uh, the First Amendment, and in particular, the freedom of association aspect of the First Amendment. The First Amendment has several freedoms that are guaranteed, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, we talk about a lot, but there's also freedom of association mentioned in the First Amendment. And one of the prongs of freedom of association is what the courts call the freedom of intimate association, our ability to have an intimate relationship, usually in the form of husband-wife relationship, sort of spousal relationship, um, but it could also be an intimate relationship that is not consummated by marriage. Uh, and that is thought to be constitutionally protected. But not all constitutional rights, in fact, no constitutional rights for that matter, are absolute. They're all subject to exceptions. Uh, and that is true of the First Amendment. We know, for example, that freedom of speech is not absolute, that you can be punished for saying certain things, right? You can be punished for making, for example, terroristic threats. Um, uh, and we know that the Fourth Amendment's um, requirement for a warrant and probable cause before a search is uh, can be authorized. We know that's subject to exceptions, for example, for exigent circumstances. That's true of freedom of association as well. And when uh, Wolf ends up in federal court on this case, uh, he learns that there are exceptions for even the freedom of intimate associations. The court dismisses his case. Why? 
What's the rationale of the court? Uh, the court says police departments function as paramilitary organizations, and they are given more latitude in decisions regarding uh, discipline and personnel regulations than an ordinary government employer. I once had a partner, Chris Vick. Uh, he and I were partners for many, many years. Great guy. And Chris used to say something like this, only the way he phrased it was that after years of representing non-police and then representing police, uh, Chris had decided that, and I'm quoting, police officers have less of a right to spit on the sidewalk than any other citizen. And that's absolutely the case, and that's what the court is saying here. Police departments giving more latitude in disciplinary decisions than ordinary government employers. And in this case, the court says the employer is arguing that the decision to investigate and demote a wolf was rationally related to their legitimate interest in running a police department. And the court says, yep, I agree. Quote, a police department has a substantial interest in developing discipline, esprit de corps, and uniformity within its ranks so as to ensure the safety of persons and properties. Sexual relationships between officers may threaten department morale. They also create the potential for sexual harassment lawsuits. Demoting Wolf reduced his supervisory responsibilities over Becker and thus reduced the possibility of favoritism, alienation, disharmony, and sexual harassment litigation for the department. Wait a minute. Demoting Wolf reduced his supervisory responsibilities over Becker? The court just told us about 15 pages before that after the demotion, Wolf had no supervisory responsibilities over Becker, or even before the demotion, uh, he had no supervisory responsibilities. It doesn't matter, uh, because actually when you look at these freedom of association cases in a non-union environment, there are cases that uphold the termination of one spouse simply because the other spouse is employed for the same employer. Not even the same police or fire department, but the same employer, the same city. Uh, so this freedom of intimate association uh, doesn't get you very far when you are challenging nepotism rules. That's it. That is our podcast for June 2022. I'm just about to uh, get on an airplane to go do a, our seminar in Las Vegas on the rights of law enforcement officers. We will be having another seminar there in September on grievances and arbitration. Uh, hope to see you at the sem seminar in September. We won't be releasing this until our June seminar has already been conducted. Uh, and I hope everybody is uh, all poised for a great summer. And with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.